Welcome to Regenerated Radio. This podcast aims to take important theological concepts from a confessional Baptist perspective and apply them to a modern context in the life of the church and the individual believer. Thanks for joining us. Let's get started. Welcome, everybody. Welcome to Regenerated Radio Season 3, Episode 7. Man, we're getting far into this little enterprise of uh, of this podcast, and I am so glad that you guys have joined me today. So glad that you've been joining me for as long as you guys have. I really appreciate all the support. Uh, and a lot of people have get left, left a lot of really great comments recently, and I really appreciate that. So I just want to uh, affirm that and, and thank you guys for that. Um, so today we have Alex DePrima on, and we're going to talk about the downgrade controversy. So I'm really excited to have him on. Uh, there's been a lot of discussion around the idea of the downgrade controversy, um, a lot of people comparing sort of modern events to it. And so we want to make sure that we have the right frame of mind uh, and, and really what happened uh, in that historical uh, setting, I, I suppose, um, and then we want to we, we want to go through that, and so I figured we'd bring in an expert, a Spurgeon expert today, and uh, I'm really excited to have Alex on. Uh, so before we bring him on, just a couple of quick things. Remember, if you're not subscribed, please hit the subscribe button, please hit the like button, all of those things they really help um, to to boost the algorithm input or whatever it happens to be for for YouTube, so we can get more eyes on these videos, and uh, hopefully that will be be helpful for some people. It certainly helps me out. And then uh, if you guys haven't checked out the exposition of the 1689 confession that I've been going through, that is still going. I have another episode coming up probably in the next couple of days here on uh, chapter five on divine providence. And then be checking out all the socials. All those things are linked below. And uh, instead of drawing out this introduction, I'm going to go ahead and get us started. So let me go ahead and bring Alex onto the call. How are you doing, Alex? <laughs> I'm doing well, brother. Thanks for having me on. All right. Well, let's pray really quickly, and then I'll give you a chance to kind of introduce yourself in full. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time today that we can come together and uh, just learn, God, that, uh, that we have this technology available uh, where we can we can discuss these things over long distances. Lord, we, we thank you that we live in that age, that we can do those things, and that's such a blessing to us. God, we pray that we would use it as a blessing and that we wouldn't take it for granted, we wouldn't take advantage of it, and we wouldn't uh, we would we would not lead ourselves into sin with it, but instead that we would use it to edify each other. We would build up the church with what we talk about. Lord, would you uh, would you just be glorified in our conversation? Lord, we pray that you would help us to speak rightly, and uh, that we would we would be able to help people understand something in a new way today that may uh, that may benefit them and edify them, and uh, as they go forward in their Christian walk. Lord, it's, a, it's in your Son's holy name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right. Well, Alex, if you wouldn't mind, could you give us just a kind of a brief who are you, a, a little biography, if you will, uh, you know, maybe some, thing, some of the things you do. I know you uh, obviously you're a pastor at a church out in, uh, in Winston-Salem in North Carolina. And so you can kind of talk about that a little bit. Um, and then anything else that you do, a lot of your writings, some of those things you can kind of plug for us. Yeah, sure. Well, uh, Greg, thank you for having me on. It's a joy to be on. And um, uh, I grew up uh, in South Florida, just north of Miami. I grew up in a wonderful church setting. I grew up uh, among Reformed Baptists, uh, so I understand you're expounding the 1689 for <laughs> folks. I grew up in a church that would have held to the 1689 uh, of of a um, not of the prickly sort mm -hmm. that you sometimes see online, right. <laughs> but of um, those that were in awe of sovereign grace and um, who were in love with uh, the doctrine of sovereign election and all that communicates about the love of God, who were eager evangelists and um, passionate about missions and preaching and worship. And so I had a wonderful upbringing in that respect. I was converted at the age of 10 uh, through the preaching of the gospel and um, very early on developed an aspiration to preach and to be a pastor. And mm. uh, that 
grew over uh, the teenage years and began to receive some external affirmation from elders and others that this would be a good way to use my life. And uh, so what I ended up doing education wise is I went to Clemson University for my undergrad, uh, did a degree in financial management, and then went directly into seminary at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. Did my MDiv there and met my wife along the way, not at Southeastern, but uh, from, from uh, back in South Carolina where we had, I had been at college. And uh, I was at a wonderful church in the Raleigh-Durham area uh, that, that uh, basically I served there, preached there, was under the mentorship of the elders there. They eventually uh, sent me out to plant a church, my wife and I, to plant a church in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. We planted here uh, five years ago, roughly, uh, covenanted in August of 2017 with about 17 charter members. Um, and, uh, along the way did my doctorate as well, kind of concurrent with planting the church. I finished, I think in 2020, I think is when I finished the doctorate studied with uh, Nathan Finn, uh, okay. studied, uh, historical theology. The focus was on Charles Spurgeon. I wrote my dissertation on his evangelical activism. Think like his social ministries and pastors, college, orphanage, those kinds of things. And, um, uh, my wife and I, you know, we now live in Winston-Salem, been uh, the preaching pastor at Emmanuel for five years, and it's been a wonderful five years, best years of our lives. Uh, we have uh, three kids, Nico, Cami, and Judah, uh, ages four, three, and one. Um, and, you know, we're, we're open to whatever the Lord has for us, but would love to be in Winston-Salem for the long haul and to pastor the flock here. And I'm um, very thankful for the spot the Lord has us in. You asked about writings. I mean, I write a lot of articles. I, I don't write like journal articles or anything like that. Um, I, I'm not really a scholar. Uh, do much <laughs> more uh, uh, popular type writing to edify sure. the church. And so I've written articles for Nine Marks and um, oh, uh, Southeastern, Spurgeon.org, the uh, London Lyceum. Mm-hmm. I think you're aware of those guys. Uh, I have an article coming out with TGC around the time of Together for the Gospel, which I think will be somewhat related to what we're talking about today on Spurgeon and controversy. Okay. And the premise is that Spurgeon was Together for the Gospel before Together for the Gospel. <laughs> before it was cool, he was doing it. Um, like <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so, and then uh, as far as writing projects, I have uh, two books I'm under contract on that should be coming out within the next 12 months or so. Uh, one is called Spurgeon and the Poor, How the Gospel compels Christian social concern, which is a popular presentation of some of the things I uncovered in my dissertation. So it's, it's for church members and pastors. And that's with Reformation Heritage. God willing, that will come out, I think January 2023 is what we're looking at. So I think it's maybe 10 months out from the, this recording. Yeah. And then another book is with uh, Hesed and Emmett, H&E. Um, Love those guys. That is an, <laughs> yeah, they're awesome. Uh, that's an edited volume. Uh, I think that working title is Spurgeon on Pastoral Ministry, Lectures and Addresses from the Prince of Preachers. Hmm, okay. And so it's working with lectures to my students, a very kind of classic book on pastoral theology. There you go. <laughs> and uh, a book called An All-Round Ministry, which is less well-known. Banner of Truth has an edition out there. They've republished it a couple of times. And um, An All-Round Ministry was basically pastor's conference addresses. Been kind of T4G type sermons, okay, you know, sure. mm-hmm. a bunch of pastors together, hundreds of pastors. These are the sermons Spurgeon preached. I take some of the greatest hits from those two volumes, providing an introductory essay, footnotes, all that kind of stuff. Yeah. And it's to, just to present Spurgeon's view of pastoral ministry. And then uh, working now on 
um, a big project that I can't say a ton about, uh, but it's in the realm of Spurgeon studies also uh, with another Spurgeon scholar and a team of contributors um, related to Spurgeon's theology and ministry. Uh, we're not yet under contract on it. I think we're nearly there, um, but maybe more on that uh, in the days ahead. Cool. Yeah. That's interesting, actually, because I, I mean, if you can't tell, I'm, I'm sure you recognize all these these shelves up here. Uh, uh-huh. Got a bunch of a bunch. We got 20 volumes of the Metropolitan Tabernacle Pulpit and the, the Lowell Spurgeon Sermon Set, which I'm pretty sure has I have most of them already. It's probably duplicated, but regardless, um, there's a lot of of preservation of Spurgeon's sermons and what he said. Uh, I feel like there's mm-hmm. less in the way of actually sort of systematizing his thought. Uh, and so, yeah, I that's sort of and I, I think the reason for that is because Spurgeon was principally a preacher. Sure. And he was a popular preacher. He wasn't a, a theologian, right. in, in at least a capital T theologian. He didn't write systematic theologies. He didn't write heavy doctrinal works. He wrote popular Christian books to mm-hmm. edify uh, the common man. And so there hasn't been any significant effort at systematizing his thought. I mean, the most thorough thing would probably be uh, Tom Nettle's book, a uh, really thick book. Oh, I think it's called um, the, some, Spurgeon in the Ministry of the Word or something like that. Really thick, kind of encyclopedic type book. But yeah, there's not been a lot on that. So we hope to hope to rectify that. Yeah, that sounds fun. I mean, I always go to John Gill as kind of the systematic and then read Spurgeon, pull those guys together as the great Baptist forefathers or something. You know, and it works oh, out Oh, for well. sure. Well, Spurgeon's got a lot to offer theologically, and he's an important reference point in Baptist identity as well. And he's just so well loved. Yeah. So expounding his thought has been a joy because not even, I mean, not only in Baptist life, you have Reformed Baptists and Southern Baptists, but you have Presbyterians and Anglicans are interested in him also. And so it's been really fun to, to be doing historical retrieval in Spurgeon and expounding some of his perspectives and thoughts. So I've enjoyed it. I've loved it. For sure. Okay. Well, I think that's actually a really good segue then into sort of the conversation mm-hmm. talking about Spurgeon and his, his theology and his presence uh, so then, obviously, the, the title of this episode is about the, the downgrade controversy, or what is the downgrade controversy? And so this, uh, I guess you just kind of give us a, a really quick rundown of, of what that was. Obviously, it's just a particular portion of his ministry and his time, mm-hmm. uh, and it's not just centered on him necessarily, but obviously Spurgeon was such a big figure within it. Uh, but you can give us kind of a, a quick rundown of what it was, what it was about, uh, and then we'll kind of hit some of those subpoints. Sure. Uh, first two books I'd recommend. Um, the first is well known to people in the Reformed Baptist or particular Baptist tradition uh, by Ian Murray. I think it came out in the 60s, even maybe early 70s, The Forgotten Spurgeon. And he gives some significant coverage to the downgrade controversy, as I recall. And then the other is a far lesser known work. It's a, a, a scholarly work by a scholar named Mark Hopkins. I think the title of the book is Nonconformity's Romantic Generation. That's the most thorough and definitive treatment of the downgrade controversy. He covers a handful of figures in congregational life and in Baptist life in England in the Victorian era, roughly, and some of the major controversies in, in that era theologically. And he has probably 60 or 70 pages on the downgrade controversy. It's by far the most thorough and um, wow, yeah. compelling exposition of the downgrade controversy. I think I have it. Hang on, just one second. <laughs> I have it right here. So there's, it's in that, that oh, okay, Potter sure. Noster Baptist Studies yeah. thing, Nonconformity's Romantic Generation. Great stuff in there. Uh, so the question is, what was the downgrade controversy and what was at issue? Uh, 
we're, we're working with kind of the end of Spurgeon's life. His dates are 1834 to 1892. He gets to London, oh, let's see, 1854. Early 1854 is when he takes the call to mm-hmm. pastor the Metropolitan. Well, at that time, it's called the New Park Street Chapel. Mm-hmm, right. He changes the name in 1861 when they move into a new building, uh, becomes the Metropolitan Tabernacle. Uh, previous pastors are John Gill was the pastor there. Before right. him, Benjamin Keach, who was mm-hmm. the signatory of the 1689. And then also John Rippon was a pastor, uh, a near successor to Spurgeon. But he's there in the 1850s. He is eager to participate in various groups and associations. He's in the Evangelical Alliance. He's in the Baptist Union. Uh, just connected to a lot of different associations and groups. Um, the Baptist Union is going to be the group that he leaves in the downgrade controversy, but is in happy fellowship with them for uh, a few decades before he departs from them, or at least a couple of decades. Hmm. Uh, a lot of people will date the beginning of the controversy in 1887. Spurgeon dies in 1892, so we're, we're toward the end of his life. Okay. Um, that said, there's kind of the first salvos in the early 1880s. Spurgeon starts to indicate, certainly by 1883, that he's... Um, how should I say? He's he's uh, certainly concerned about theological drift among the Baptists. He's definitely seen it among the Congregationalists, and he's in the Sword in the Trowel, his monthly magazine, has made some comments about drift in, in the Congregationalist world. Hmm. Um, Congregationalists are like Baptists in every way, except they believe in infant baptism, the Congregationalists of Spurgeon's Day. Um, but uh, polity-wise, very similar to, to the Baptists right, sure. um, in terms of congregational autonomy. And uh, he's seeing some drift there, and he sees that drift being replicated in Baptist life also. And so he writes some articles in the early 1880s that indicate he's concerned. We know we have uh, letters that he's written to friends indicating that he thinks the day will come when he has to leave the Baptist Union, that he doesn't think that day is yet. But he, he's, he's not optimistic about where things are going. Now, if you think the 1880s, this is the beginnings of kind of the trickle down of German higher criticism. Right. Uh, I can't remember the dates on Schleiermacher, maybe the 1850s and 60s or when he's writing. I don't know. Mm-hmm. But um, you're beginning to see the inroads of liberalism into uh, the UK as sort of the center of the evangelical world and then a little later into America also. And uh, that's, be- that's, that's well underway by the 1880s. Also, uh, Charles Darwin's The Origin of Species, I think, comes out in 1858, 59, something like that. that. So that's having its effect at this point as well. When that project first began, it wasn't like it was met with like popular uh, applause. It was, again, steadily that kind of worked its way into uh, uh, among sort of the educated elite beginning to embrace something like Darwinianism. So all these forces are converging on evangelical life in general. The Baptists are beginning to feel it. Spurgeon's concerned about it. In 1887, uh, two articles are written, I think, in March and April successively in The Sword and the Trowel that are pretty directly criticizing uh, Spurgeon's fellow Baptists, suggesting that there is theological drift in the Baptist Union. Mm. Now, a lot of people think Spurgeon wrote those articles, but he did it. Uh, they were pu- published anonymously, uh, written by a friend of Spurgeon's named Robert Schindler. So okay. the first two articles were not written by Spurgeon, written, again, I think March, April, 1887. In uh, September, I think, of 1887, or maybe August, 
Spurgeon then writes an article, and then he begins to simply refer to it as the, the downgrade. Hmm. Or I don't know if he uses the word controversy, but he begins sure. to just refer to the doctrinal downgrade as that thing we've been suggesting as a thing in Baptist life. And things move pretty quickly after that. I mean, Spurgeon's pretty, um, he's pretty full-throated in his criticism of the Baptists of his day. Hmm. The criticism Spurgeon offers center around three main doctrines, and I must insist it was a doctrinal controversy. Right. Uh, Spurgeon had lots of disagreements over um, social things, political things with other Baptists. He differed with them over pragmatism. He differed with them over Calvinism and Arminianism. Differed over all kinds of stuff. None of those things ever rose to the level for Spurgeon of actually leaving the Baptist Union. Sure. It was when he felt that core tenets of the faith were being questioned mm-hmm. did he believe that, that he needed to get out of the Baptist Union. Three main doctrines that he felt were being denied by a steady preponderance of Baptist preachers. Uh, one would have been the inspiration and infallibility of the Bible. So scripture, he felt, was, was being jeopardized. Higher critical methods were being applied. People were beginning to deny what we would today probably call like the inerrancy of the Bible. Right, yeah. But it suggests that certain miracles didn't happen and certain books weren't inspired and that kind of thing. So that's a big concern. The second is uh, his concern that uh, penal substitutionary atonement, or at least the necessity and nature of the atonement, is being fooled with. Right, and yeah. men are beginning to step away from the idea that Jesus suffers as a wrath-bearing, sin-bearing sacrifice in the place of men, suffers the wrath of God in our place in order to procure salvation for us. Hmm. He believes that's the heart of the gospel, and he believes it's beginning to be denied by sort of new divinity guys. That's how right. the, kind of the shorthand he gives to this movement, huh. new divinity or new uh, theology or the new divines. And then the third issue, so we have uh, scripture, atonement, the third, and this takes the cake for Spurgeon, becomes the focal point of the controversy, is uh, the issue of, of variously, you could say universalism, or what he often would say was uh, the larger hope theory, the idea that in the end we're all saved, uh, but something that amounted to the denial of eternal conscious torment and punishment. Okay. So either men were denying that hell existed, period. Right. Or they were saying that actually we're just all saved. So mm-hmm. some men who denying that hell existed would not go as far as to say we're all saved in the end. Maybe we're sure. annihilated or whatever. Right. But uh, so so it's that issue that ends up becoming the focal point. A lesser issue that he's concerned about is a general want of holiness among Baptist preachers. So uh, men becoming more worldly in their view of entertainment, their view of how they spend their time the way they speak in the pulpit, the influences they bring into the church life, but that's downstream of his main concern. Okay, yeah. So I'd want to emphasize it's a doctrinal controversy. What happens is things move very quickly. Uh, uh, he eventually uh, decides to resign from uh, the Baptist Union in, in protest. And Mark Hawkins is interesting. He makes the point that Spurgeon never thought he was going to reform the Baptist Union. That was never his goal, that all he was trying to do is basically lobby his protest and then back out. Yeah. It's a compelling idea. He, he backs out, and then uh, it gets very complicated, but there's meetings that are held between him and the Baptist Union and officials and all of that. What they eventually do is they sort of paint him as you know, just this cantankerous old man <laughs> who's making false accusations and disturbing the unity of the brethren, mm-hmm. and they formally censure him, uh, which was something he did not expect at all and was wow. deeply grieved by. 
That precipitates after that, that's January of 1888 now, he's censured. I think he resigns in November or December of 1887. He's censured in January 1888. And again, I might have some of these dates wrong. Uh, but then after that, there is a debate that goes off the next few months. The Baptist Union begins to want to maybe court Spurgeon to bring him back in, hmm. or at least to sort of exculpate themselves of the charges Spurgeon's making. And so what they begin to do is talk about what would it look like to affirm a kind of evangelical charter or a basic confessional statement that places us safely within evangelicalism. Uh, they do eventually affirm a kind of evangelical charter, um, but they stop short of uh, affirming the existence and eternality of hell hmm. and okay. entertain the kind of the larger hope view within that statement, which would be consistent with Spurgeon's concerns. Sure. Uh, and so this controversy sort of defines the end of his life. His wife in her memoirs of him suggests that this is part of the reason why he died young. Hmm. He was 57 when right. he died. His dad, interestingly enough, lived to be, I think, 91, 91. And his grandpa lived to be 88. Wow. Uh, so he definitely died you know, much younger than you would think he would have. Yeah. And, Did he um, outlive his father? Uh, no, his father outlived okay. him. Okay. Yeah. So I think I have that right. Yeah. So yeah, so it was a messy conflict. Uh, not a lot of people follow Spurgeon out of the Baptist Union, to mm. his surprise and to mm. his great hurt. Yeah. Uh, so tons of the men in Baptist life are trained by Spurgeon. By the time he dies in 1892, 20% of all the Baptist ministers in England had been trained at Spurgeon's College. Wow. And yet not many of them, you know, leave with him. Some of yeah. them still support him for sure, but he's kind of alone in his protest. And he makes that famous statement, you know, I'm, I'm happy to be eaten of dogs for the next 50 years, but I'm certain the more distant future will vindicate me. I think he was looking to the second coming. I think oh, yeah. a lot of times it's <laughs> quoted to say, well, now we see that Spurgeon has vindicated the Baptist Union, went thoroughly liberal, and he was right, right about everything. Mm -hmm. And Well, I think he was looking for Christ to vindicate him at the second coming. But, hmm. So that's something on the downgrade controversy. Okay. So it's definitely, um, you, would, you, you mentioned a couple of times in there, it's a really doctrinal controversy um, uh, about yeah. things that are, and I guess that's a, the next question on here was that I that I'd written was are these secondary or primary concerns? Now I guess part of that is is applying this sort of modern idea of theological triage to the controversy where that maybe didn't exist at the time or maybe the the terminology hadn't. I'm sure I'm sure the practice was in. Uh, <laughs> oh no doubt, no. something like that language is is being employed a lot in those days. Yeah. Okay. And yeah. so these are these are then primary concerns to Spurgeon now. Uh, well, yeah, primary concerns in that they're basic tenets in his mind of Christian orthodoxy. Sure. In, in Spurgeon's mind, certainly if you deny the authority, inspiration, infallibility of the Bible, you're not a Christian. Right. You can't be a Christian and have that view. He would also say that penal substitutionary atonement's at the heart of the gospel. Not that there aren't other theories of atonement that are like other lights that are shining on the diamond, you know, <laughs> yeah. to make it shine more brilliantly. But the heart of the issue is Jesus in our place. Mm -hmm. And he's gonna, he's, he thinks the gospel's under attack. And then, yeah, you take out the doctrine of hell, you could pretty much move anything out of the scriptures in his mind. Right. So they're, they're, they're primary doctrines and they're matters of basic Christian orthodox in his view. And some of this stuff is getting to basic creeds kind of stuff yeah, uh, for him. Right. Not all of it, but some of it. I think, you know, it's interesting because we do see some of those same 
concepts and same issues coming up today uh, in some modern things. But I don't want to jump there yet. That's, we're kind of jumping yeah, the sure. gun, but I do, I do want to get to that eventually. Well, uh, it's worth emphasizing, though, Greg, Spurgeon tolerated lots of differences with his sure. brothers in Baptist life and the water evangelical world. Happy to partner with guys mm -hmm. with whom he differed on secondary issues like Calvinism, like pedo-baptism. In fact, the president or the principal of his pastor's college is a pedo-baptist. Hmm. The headmaster of his orphanage is a pedo-baptist. Wow. He actually has, before he dies, a lot of people think that he picked out his heir apparent, who was actually a pedo-baptist. Hmm. Um, I, I don't think actually he he was setting this guy up to be the long-term pastor. It was a Presbyterian man, uh, A.T. Pearson, I think his name was. But he was filling the pulpit for those months while Spurgeon was dying, basically. Wow. Uh, so he's happy to share fellows, even with some Anglicans also. He, right, he sure. despised the Anglican establishment. I felt persecuted in some ways by the state church. We still had many Anglican friends. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. So then how does it come to an, to an end? I mean, I guess it doesn't really end so much as the, they split paths and the Baptist union goes off and like you say, falls into real mm -hmm. theological liberalism. And then and Spurgeon dies. Yeah. You know? so, so, so we have the Spurgeon withdraws from the Baptist union late 1887. The Baptist union censures him. They go their separate ways. And it grieves Spurgeon to the end of his life. And he's still having conversations with lots of those men in the union. And people are slandering him and saying all kinds of things negative about him. And occasionally he will try to vindicate his good name. But for the most part, he just sort of, I mean, at, at the same time, he's the pastor of the biggest church in Christendom. Right. So <laughs> people still adore Charles Spurgeon sure. in his later days. But he's very sick at this time. He's got kidney failure, Bright's disease. He's got um, uh, gout and things like that. So this is, you know, it's a, it's a sad episode to occur at the end of a man's life. But um, my personal view is that he, he died defending basic Christian orthodoxy and was despised for it by many, certainly by those in the Baptist Union. Yeah. But I think he was doing the right thing. Well, you know, it's That's Alex the pastor talking, there not Alex the scholar. There yeah. you go. <laughs> uh, I think it's interesting, too, because it does sort of call back in some ways to me I mean, we can talk about how how we apply the term today as well, but I think about this looks like just another instance in the history of the church where we, we've moved towards liberalism and then somebody makes a stand and that you can go back to Martin Luther, for example, and does the same sort of thing. And I mean, have you seen that connection made in, in your Spurgeon world, you know, and talking with other people? Is that connection made very often? That Spurgeon is often stipulated as like an example of standing against liberalism, and yeah, that or kind of even thing. or even like a direct connection—not direct, but um, sort of a direct analogy to like a Martin Luther or the reformers moving. I'm forward. sure. I'm sure I've heard somebody make that connection, but you know, it's it's, it's a slightly different. I mean, I think Spurgeon was attempting primarily protest, mm -hmm. which I suppose the Protestants—their name has that <laughs> word in it, right? Yeah, but I think I, I think he wasn't thinking primarily. He did not enter the fray of the downgrade controversy primarily to bring about a reformation of doctrine sure. okay. among the Baptists. I think I mean he'd be thrilled if that happened, but I think he realized th this is going in a direction I can't share fellowship with brothers who deny these doctrines. I need to withdraw. Mm -hmm. So I don't think we should view Spurgeon as kind of putting his hands on the gears of the denomination to try to turn it around. <laughs> he's not doing that. He's, he's look, I, I, I'm, I'm just going to quietly back out. He doesn't name names. He's not writing articles. Hey, this pastor preached this, so here's my evidence for that. It, he's not doing that at all. He wants, to, he wants to kind of go and be left alone. And that's why I think the, the vote of censure was so grievous to him. 
I think he thought, why can't you guys just let me go out? You know, why, why does it have to be more acrimonious? Right. Uh, but of course, I mean, he's probably naive to think it couldn't be because he's, he's Charles Spurgeon. He's the biggest yeah. <laughs> evangelical celebrity in the known world. Um, right. So there's no way a guy like that can leave quietly. And the Baptist Union, for their part, felt they had to vindicate themselves um, from the charges that Spurgeon had made in, in, in the, the sword in the trail. Yeah, you know, the more um, <laughs> the more you you stay in touch with current events in evangelicalism, we'll say, the more you start to see when you look at these event these these past events like similarities and differences. And I, I guess we mm. should go there sort of now, sure. Uh, mm, yeah. Because while and we'll get to the idea of the term being misused, which I do think it's misused in a lot of ways. Um, but at the same time, there are certainly uh, aspects of that that same kind of thing happening where broader organizations disagree with, or certain people disagree, but then they have different approaches on how they're doing those sorts of things. Now, mm -hmm. Spurgeon backs out, uh, whereas other people maybe in, in modern day are not doing those things and are, are trying to be more hands-on and proactive. Mm -hmm. um, you mm -hmm. know, whether or not that's right or wrong is not, not really the discussion, but uh, I just think it's interesting to look at those and see that that's, that was Spurgeon's response. So, okay, this is happening here. Well, We're backing away. Yes, and, 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 and Spurgeon was out of his way to say he's not an example to anybody. Mm -hmm. So he does not, he actually says, hey, some of my brothers want to stay in here and fight this out and work for reform. God calls different men to different things. Mm -hmm. I'm for those brothers. I will pray for their success. This is not my fight. So he's not saying whenever there's this kind of, if, if, if there's, there's uh, liberalism seeping in a denomination, the right thing to do is in protest leave. Right. He's saying, I'm, I'm following my conscience, my ministry. I feel this is taking me out of communion with, with these brothers. But I am, I am cheerleading for those who want to stay in and work for reform. Mm -hmm. So he's, he's very, to each man, his own. I mean, he, he stands and falls before his master. And if, if your conscience can have you in here working for reform, praise God, what a worthy work. Yeah. But it's not, it's not my work. It's kind of, I think, his attitude. Yeah. What a very Baptist attitude. <laughs> yeah, sure, right. <laughs> okay, so then, okay, now we can move into the sort of the modern usage of the term. So, so how are people, and how have you seen, I suppose, people comparing current events, maybe within the SBC, maybe more broadly within evangelicalism, um, to specifically the downgrade controversy? I know I've seen it a few times, and uh, but yeah, if you have any specifics that you can think of. Well, the, the reality is, I mean, Spurgeon is so popular and so well-loved. Yeah. And mm -hmm. I studied Spurgeon on a doctoral level for five years, and um, you're not going to find lots of skeletons in his closet. Right. You know, not that I can find. I mean, mm -hmm. there's people could dislike things about his theology, but the man is just generally a man of integrity. He avoids any kind of moral scandal. Um, there's very little you got to apologize for when you talk to people about Charles Spurgeon, yeah. <laughs> um, where it's not that way with a lot of older theologians in, in different eras of church history. And so he just, he's well-loved across the board. He's a big tent evangelical. He's a gospel preacher. Um, if, if you can't read Spurgeon's sermons and be edified, not to be uh, snotty, but I, I just wonder if like, you're a Christian. I mean, <laughs> yeah. they're so full of Christ and they're mm -hmm. so full of his grace. And I, I don't, Consider Spurgeon an example in every respect with regard to preaching, but man, the Spurgeon just overflow with the aroma of the Lord Jesus. And so he's so well-loved, which means, I think, when anybody comes to a place in their denomination or in their convention or in their setting where there's a doctrinal controversy, everyone's so eager to claim Spurgeon, because if you claim Spurgeon, that's everybody's boy. Everybody right. loves Spurgeon. <laughs> and if I could get Spurgeon on my side, well, that's a heavyweight. 
you know? Yeah. Right. Um, you know, so, so there's that desire with Spurgeon. I see to kind of position him and marshal him for, for our side. And so it's not just unique to our time, Greg. I mean, uh, Spurgeon was uh, a champion for the fundamentalists in, mm. uh, the 1920s in America, 1930s. They loved to kind of line Spurgeon up as their guy. Still, many people alive in those days who had heard Spurgeon preach and they would try to show, Hey, see the things we're the, the drift we're seeing in our seminaries or our institutions or our denominations. Well, Hey, when Spurgeon saw this, he stood on the word and he did this for that. He's our guy. We stand with Spurgeon and we're going to do like him. Uh, so there's lots of examples of early fundamentalists kind of clinging to Spurgeon in the midst of those fundamentalist modernist takes. Uh, but there's many in uh, the 1960s that takes a, a similar posture as uh, many reform groups kind of go into exile out of the major denominations, hmm. certainly in the 70s and 80s in Southern Baptist life. Right. Um, so a lot of people are using downgrade language during the sort of the liberal years of the Southern Baptist Convention going into the conservative resurgence of the 80s and 90s. Um, but now today, there are lots of criticisms perhaps depending on the denomination or the different bodies, some might be valid, some might be invalid, some might have some validity to them, some might be more spurious, that there's doctrinal downgrade in the Southern Baptist Convention or in the PCA or whatever. Sure. Mm-hmm. Uh, fill whatever group in the blank that you want to. <laughs> and it's very common, it's very tempting for those on the right to immediately run to Spurgeon and say, here's, here's our example, here's our God. And to start quoting Spurgeon in their favor, to start setting him up as sort of one of their troops. The funny thing is, I, I would make, there is this um, contradiction between a lot of people who do that and what Spurgeon himself did. Spurgeon didn't try to reform right. anything. Mm-hmm. Spurgeon just left. So, so if you want to follow in Spurgeon's train, you'd get out of your denomination. Yeah. <laughs> so, so in, in uh, our church affiliates with the Southern Baptist Convention, not at all the most important thing about us, but we're in the convention and happily so. Mm-hmm. And there's, it's a wild place. It's a big tent group and some <laughs> things are wonderful and some things are just sort of cringe and kind of squint, squint at them. Um, you know, a lot of people, especially on the, the, the right, especially far right in debates in Southern Baptist life right now, I see using a lot of Spurgeonic language, downgrade controversy type language arguing that there's liberal drift in the Southern Baptist Convention. My own opinion is that regardless of the validity or not of that charge, um, most people I see identifying concerns about leftward drift are talking primarily about leftward drift in the arena of social issues. Sure, right. Or even politically, mm-hmm. not primarily doctrinally. So, so no one's arguing over the inspiration of the Bible in Southern Baptist life. Uh, no one's arguing over the necessity of the atonement. Or the existence of hell. I mean, I'm sure there are Southern Baptists who deny these things. Yeah. But that's not what the debates have. The debates over CRT and it's over women in ministry. Sure. Mm-hmm. Um, and a handful of other things. Yeah. Although uh, I don't mean to just diminish those to social issues. There's certainly anthropology is an important doctrine. Right, exactly. Head, but it's not the kind of basic matters of Christian orthodoxy that Spurgeon was, was fighting over. So in that sense, they're not parallel. There's a lot going on in the PCA right now over revoice and that kind of stuff. Right. There's mm-hmm. some in that camp, I think, that use some of the downgrade controversy language. Um, more recently, just to name a few names, I know Tom Askell has used a lot of the downgrade controversy language. Oh, and Strand, though I don't think I don't think Owen's affiliated with a denomination. Not anymore. Um, he's not in the SBC anymore. Yeah. Mm-hmm. 
he has compared a lot of like a John MacArthur Grace Community stuff. He calls Grace Community right. the Metropolitan Tabernacle of our day. <laughs> John MacArthur standing up against the downgrade controversy of our day, that kind of stuff. Um, and I don't think Owen is saying there's an exact parallel, but he's trying. I do think he's trying to say there is some parallel. And uh, MacArthur's like Spurgeon, Grace Community is like the Metropolitan Tabernacle. This pale of issues that he's standing against, whatever those are, are kind of like the kinds of things Spurgeon wanted to stand against in his own day. Right. Uh, if you want my opinion, Greg, I'll tell you, I think those parallels are not good ones to make, historically mm. speaking, but uh, to each his own. Yeah. <laughs> you know, people want to try to use that language and get something there and get something across. Yeah, I, I think, don't find the parallel helpful. Yeah, I think that um, as far as the issues go, people will, will look at social issues and then claim that there's a theological underpinning that, that needs to be addressed. And, and while I, I don't necessarily disagree even with that, um, what we're talking about here and the, the use of the downgrade language and the use of Spurgeon as an example, well, the, it's not as if the people who, you know, us and, and I would consider myself obviously more more conservative. Um, I mean, I sure. literally Same just po- I literally just posted an article that endorsed Tom Askell <laughs> and talked about how he's, you know, the maybe more conservative uh, among a conservative denomination, we have to be honest. Uh, sure. But regardless, with all, with all that said, uh, even then, it's it's important to remember that Spurgeon, as you said, was these these churches were actually talking about th- those doctrines and and actually like casting them aside directly right? <laughs> rather than yeah I, uh, indirectly I, well, I suppose I, I just off the top of my head I think a really good historical analog would be like J Gresham Machen mm-hmm, sure and uh, the liberal drift at Princeton Seminary. So he's addressing some of the same issues yeah virgin birth necessity of atonement inspiration of the bible he writes christianity and liberalism and and basically tries to it's a brilliant book this is what christianity is and he sticks with basic orthodoxy doesn't talk about calvinism you right. know basic mm-hmm. orthodoxy he says all right you want to say these these things are not true fine but be honest and recognize you're not talking about christianity anymore this over here is what christianity is you begin to deny these things mm-hmm. you don't have christianity on your hands anymore and it's basic issues of orthodoxy. He makes his protest. I think he makes an effort at reform. He eventually leaves and starts, sure. what, the OPC, yes. I think, and Westminster mm-hmm. Theological Seminary. So that would be kind of very similar yeah. to Spurgeon's concerns and also the way Spurgeon behaves in the context of doctrinal controversy. Right. I think we're just at a different moment in SBC life, and I don't know the PCA as well, but as best I understand the issues in the PCA, they're just different issues. Mm-hmm. And... Um, there may not be as much to retrieve in Spurgeon for these particular debates. Yeah. And that's not to say, uh, and I don't think you would say this either, but it's not to say that there aren't concerns and there aren't things to be addressed. Uh, by or even to say that Spurgeon wouldn't be upset about <laughs> sure, some of right. things. I have no idea. And I'm not eager to introduce Spurgeon into debates he never <laughs> had. He yeah. had enough debates in his own life. You know, but but yeah, I mean, may, maybe he would be concerned about uh, ways in which, well, I, I could tell you, he'd certainly be concerned about the women in ministry question to the degree that that's happening. Sure. He would protest that. Um, you know, the CRT stuff, probably harder to, to wrap around. I think he'd have a more conservative take on that kind of thing. Um, you know, these kinds of issues, he, he leaned conservative, but I don't know how he would respond. Would he stay in the denomination? Would he leave? Would he protest as vigorously as a Tom Askell? Would he not? I'd totally be speculating. Right. 
Yeah. And and again, even even within that, if somebody in our denomination is making those concerns and raising those concerns, and, and if we somehow came to the conclusion that if Spurgeon was transported forward to our day and he's not doing that and he just leaves, it doesn't mean that's the wrong thing to do to stay in reform. Oh, no, yeah. That's what you're yeah. saying with uh, his peers. So. Yeah, well, and, and one thing I can say for certain, Greg, is that Spurgeon is a together-for-the-gospel guy. Mm-hmm. He wants to have unity interdenominationally. He wants to have unity with people who disagree with him on all kinds of things. He wants to have lots of friends from different denominations and different groups who like him, uh, uh, like Paul says in the opening of First Corinthians 1, those who in every place call upon the name of the Lord, both their Lord and ours. If you believe the gospel, Spurgeon wants to be united to you. Yeah. And whether that looks like being in a formal denomination together or association together, maybe, maybe not. But he's not this kind of Reformed Baptist who wants to be isolated and distant from others. He's eager right. to be in communion and fellowship with other Christians. And it's only going to separate when he feels a basic matter of Christian conscience or a basic matter of doctrinal orthodoxy is at stake. But man, he was in all kinds of groups with other folks. And when he leaves the Baptist Union, that's the period where he knows the most fellowship with Anglicans in his entire life. He has really happy experiences among Anglicans, even though, of course, he himself remains a Baptist. Um, so very, very evangelical in yeah. that respect and ecumenical in that respect. I'm getting to know some Anglicans these days, and they're they're, they're good people. <laughs> yeah, sure. Well, he would love he would love you know th- these gatherings where you have guys from different denominations and they're together on on primary things. Yeah, he would love that. Mm-hmm. He would love the efforts to unite people around the gospel and basic evangelical convictions. Yeah, he okay. thinks that's a worthy effort. Yeah, I agree. That's that's uh, it's always fun to I've I've done my best to pull in. And by the way, I guess if you're listening and, and you're not familiar, I have a Discord server. That's a that's maybe not something you're familiar with. Not, not all of my listeners are. It's very similar to Slack um, or, or some kind of you know live communication um, chat room based kind of thing. And so we have a lot of people in there from a lot of different denominations, and it's really good. A lot of really good conversations, and I just, I really yeah, encourage wonderful. people to have more and more connections with people that are outside of your tradition. Because mm-hmm. if nothing else, it, it helps you to be able to defend what you believe and. Um, mm-hmm. And it exposes you to other people and gives you that sort of attitude, that really evangelical-minded attitude where you are. Uh, it's, it's the invisible church. We are, uh, we are a, a whole body of believers, not just our local churches, yeah. even though yeah. you know, we're Baptists. That's why <laughs> I, I find it funny that the fundamentalists who are of a more isolation, a separation, mm-hmm. and stripe, when, when they try to talk about Spurgeon, I, I find that humorous. Like he's their guy. <laughs> yeah. But there was nothing tribal about Spurgeon. Right. He just wanted to, be, he wanted to be with those who were for the gospel, did not want to separate if he could avoid it. And only did it when he, he thought he had to. Yeah. Okay. Well, then to sort of land the plane, I guess, what what's something that if you had to pick one or two just lessons that we can learn from the downgrade controversy or in, in the way Spurgeon handles it or just even in the, the situation in the context itself uh, about how to handle division and dissension or, or maybe just another lesson that you have in mind, what would you, what would you give as your lessons? <laughs> yeah, it's a great question. Um, well, I, I will say, I mean, Spurgeon is definitely outfoxed in the downgrade controversy, and he mm. makes a number of missteps in t- procedurally. He wasn't very familiar with denominational politics. Okay, I do think there are things Spurgeon might have done to limit some of the damage to his own good name and to maybe have uh, the, the guys he was working with, a lot of them were doctors of divinity, and they were very experienced in denominational procedure and protocol, and right. they kind of 
so that, that there's a piece to that if people are interested in studying that out. Mark Hopkins' book is very helpful in that respect. I think um, I think every true-hearted Christian pastor, theologian, a church member, frankly, needs to understand there is a line that can't be crossed and a line that does break fellowship, whether or not you stay in a convention or denomination or not. If you do not have these most basic things in common related to the gospel and the word of God and the concerns of eternity, um, you have to be prepared in all faithfulness to either reform or protest and step away. Yeah. So I think, so I'm speaking as a pastor now, I think what Spurgeon did ultimately was right. He, he protested and he, he had to. He could have stayed and reformed. And that would have been fine also. But nonetheless, he needed to stand up for the truth. Right. And I think his stand for the truth is noble and right. And um, I don't think conservative doctrine is going to uh, find a happy home in the generations to come, at least in our country. And so I would encourage evangelicals to inject that kind of spurgeonic steel in your spine to be prepared <laughs> when the time comes, you're going to stand on the truth and not curry favor with man and be ready. I just think we always need to be reminded of that, the, yeah. the, the tendency to compromise, the tendency to drift that's ever, ever with us. And Spurgeon, you read his statements during the downgrade controversy and things that led him to stand for the truth and to withdraw from the, the union. Uh, very ennobling and encouraging. If there's a- anything in any of your listeners, anyone watching this, who might be feel themselves prone to compromise, maybe Spurgeon could be an accountability partner for you. Hmm. Um, but the other thing I would say, and this is the reverse end of that, that I, I could just encourage men of my stripe will just say, I'm, I'm reformed in my soteriology, Baptist in my ecclesiology, kind of in the nine marks kind of shape. Um, I, I am in the convention, it's on the Baptist convention, and I have no plans to leave. Um, our church is in the convention, I should say, and has no plans to leave. Mm-hmm. Um, speaking to my brothers and sisters, um, I would encourage us to uh, be on guard against tribalism and to love unity. Yes. Yeah. And to hate controversy, to be willing to step into it when we cry required. That's that's the first lesson I want I highlighted. But um, yeah, so right now in our church, you know, we're talking to some potential elder candidates, and one of the things that I'm mindful of is is I want a man to serve in the office of elder who is willing to enter into the fray, to say the hard things, stand on the truth. Maybe that means entering into controversy at points, but he's not going to wimp out. He's going to stand for what's right. And I also want him to have a distaste for controversy. He doesn't like arguing. He's not a pugilist, as the qualifications yeah. say. Mm-hmm. He loves unity. And the Psalms say that. How good is it when brothers dwell in, in, in unity? Um, so we should love unity. We should love uh, uh, being connected to those who embrace the gospel. And we should speak in that way. And we should fight for broad unity with brothers and sisters. We should eschew tribalism, separationism, isolationism, our, our turfism. Um, but of course, back to that first lesson, if the truth is being denied, we have to take our stand. So I would say those two things, we see them illustrated very well in Spurgeon. He is a together for the gospel guy. Are you my brother in Christ? Let's stand together. Let's find a way to fellowship and, and share partnership together. Um, but if he thinks you, you, you're too far gone, you have denied essential things about the faith. I cannot stand that. I must be willing, come what may, 
suffer whatever loss I need to suffer, I'm going to stand for the truth over a confederation with those who deny it. Right. Those would be, I think, the two main lessons I draw from the downgrade controversy. Yeah, and that's, I mean, I, I wish that's a lesson that everyone could just immediately get implanted because uh, it's, it, tribalism is a big issue in our modern yeah. context. And uh, you know, one of the things I really like, you mentioned London Lyceum earlier, and I mean, mm-hmm. I, I've been calling myself London Lyceum, like dollar store version for a while. <laughs> 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 Pulling all these guys onto the podcast and everything. But anyway, um, I, I appreciate the, the cheerful confessionalism aspect and the, Amen, yeah. uh, the, the desire to be charitable. Um, and I think that should be our primary goal. And yet, and yet, there are enough times where I come across people um, that have those 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 primary doctrines wrong, um, and in such a way that it's it's uh, violently so almost. And so, yeah. it's it's really important for us to be able to do that. Um, that that idea of theological triage is uh, something that I think everyone should be able to do. Um, yeah, yeah. We should be lovers of truth and lovers of unity. And I think now is a very good time for us all to check our hearts and say, mm-hmm. look, do I do I do I um, chicken out and am I willing to step away from the truth and compromise my faith to curry favor with certain people or occupy certain positions and in institutions or churches or denominations? And am I, am I becoming soft on the truth? And is that, is that where I, is that my weakness? Mm-hmm. Virgin can help you. If you are someone on the other end who loves a fight and is really yeah. looking for a theological hill to die on, Spurgeon's not going to be your friend. I mean, really, he does that more or less in two prominent places in his ministry, the big one being the downgrade controversy. He is not eager to divide. He does not like fighting. He's more like a hobbit. He just wants, you know, <laughs> uh, peace and tranquility. And he wants to preach the gospel and he wants to see people one to faith. He's not trying to divide from anybody or fight with anybody. And he'll do that when he must. Right. So love the truth, love unity. I think those are the, the big themes there. All right. Well, that sounds great. And I think that's a, a really good place for us to wrap up the conversation. Uh, before we head out, and from you guys listening, if you have um, any thoughts, feel free to leave them in the comments and uh, we'll try to answer them as possible. But uh, definitely want to kind of move on from, uh, I don't know what I'm trying to say here, <laughs> but I want us to go ahead and move forward and uh, kind of wrap up today. So, where can we find you online? Give us some plugs. Where do we find your work? I've got a couple of things linked in the uh, in the description of this video already for you guys watching. You can go down there and click on it. But where else can we find some of your stuff? Yeah, I'm on social media, so you can find me on Twitter. Um, I'm mostly posting stuff about Spurgeon and stuff about pastoral ministry, trying to encourage uh, guys like me who are in the ministry uh, and share good quotes when I can. Um, and then yeah, on Facebook, feel free to friend me. Um, and then a pastor of Emmanuel Church in Winston-Salem. If you're in town, come visit us. I mean, my primary work is to shepherd the flock and preach the word. So all my sermons are online. And then, uh, yeah, I have these books hopefully coming out over the next, you know, year right, to yeah. two years. And you can look out for those, Spurgeon and the Poor with Reformation Heritage, Spurgeon on Pastoral Ministry, H&D, and a couple other projects hopefully in the pipeline. Um, but yeah, would love to connect with pastors out there, theologians, scholars. We'd love it. Yep. And then I have a, a direct link to um, all your writings on, I think it's Spurgeon.org or something. I can't remember. but mm-hmm. uh, Yeah, Spurgeon.org. I've written on Nine Marks, Southeastern, mm-hmm. uh, London Lyceum, done stuff with them, done some podcasts with them and those guys. Yeah. yeah. Cool. All right. Well, would you mind praying for us to close this out today? I'd love to. Thank you, Greg. Our Father in heaven, thank you for this time we could spend together. We do thank you for your servant, Charles Spurgeon, and all the blessing that you have been pleased to bring through his noble life, his preaching, his writings, 
even his church, the Metropolitan Tabernacle, which is still there, faithfully uh, proclaiming the word in London to this day. We do ask uh, that we would glean everything we could glean from his life that would be positive for the moment that we find ourselves in. We pray that like him, we would be lovers of the gospel, lovers of the truth, that we would um, be lovers of your word and defenders of your word. We pray that you would move upon us to be those who preach Christ and him crucified, as Spurgeon did, and so many before him. We pray also, Lord, that we'd be prepared to make stands that we must take for the truth, especially in issues of primary importance, things of first importance, as the Apostle Paul calls them in 1 Corinthians 15. We pray that you would deliver us from fear of man, that you would give to us such a love for the truth that we could sing with Martin Luther, the body they may kill, God's truth abideth still. At the same time, Lord, make us lovers of our fellow men, especially lovers of our Christian brethren, and those eager to preserve the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace, uh, eager to bring out the best in one another, even, even those who might be our theological opponents at times, eager to develop a platform for theological unity and a shared standing in the gospel. Guide us in these things. These are difficult days, so many voices, um, so much disagreement. We pray that you would labor for the health of your churches and the unity of these bodies, uh, that the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ would go forward and that we would be faithful in our witness and service to Christ uh, and, and what we represent to the world around us. Uh, so bless us now as we conclude this time. Help us to be faithful in all things. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to Regenerated Radio. If this resource was edifying or encouraging, I hope you'll consider leaving a five-star review on your podcast app of choice. Also, be sure to subscribe to the YouTube channel for live podcasts, theology primers, book reviews, and more. Have a blessed week, and we'll see you next time.